0: THE YELLOW FACE By author Conan Doyle In publishing these short sketches based upon the numerous cases in which my companion's singular gifts have made us the to listeners too, and eventually the actors in, some strange drama, it is only natural that I should dwell rather upon his successes than upon his failures. And this not so much for the sake of his reputations, for indeed it was when he was at his wit's end that his energy and his versatility were most admirable, but because where he failed it happened too often that no one else succeeded, and that the tale was left forever without a conclusion. Now and again, however, it chanced that even when he erred the truth was still discovered. I have noted of some half-dozen cases of the kind of which the adventure of the Musgrave ritual, and that which I am about to recount, are the two which present the strongest features of interest. Sherlock Holmes was a man who seldom took exercise for exercise's sake. Few men were capable of greater muscular effort, and he was undoubtedly one of the finest boxers of his weight that I had ever seen. But he looked upon aimless bodily exertion as a waste of energy, and he seldom bestirred himself, save when there was some professional object to be served. Then he was absolutely untiring and indefatigable, that he should have kept himself in training under such circumstances is remarkable. But his diet was usually of the sparest, and his habits were simple to the verge of austerity. Save for the occasional use of cocaine, he had no vices, and he only turned to the drug as a protest against the monotony of existence when cases were scanty and papers uninteresting. One day in early spring he had so far relaxed as to go for a walk with me in the park, while the first faint shoots of green were breaking out upon the elms, and the sticky spearheads of the chestnuts were just beginning to burst into their five-fold leaves. For two hours we rambled about together, in silence for the most part, as befits two men who know each other intimately. It was nearly five before we were back in Baker Street once more. "'Beg pardon, sir,' said our page-boy, as he opened the door." There's a gentleman here asking for you, sir. Holmes glanced reproachfully at me. So much for afternoon walks, said he. Has this gentleman gone, then? Yes, sir. Didn't you ask him in? Yes, sir, he came in. How long did he wait? Half an hour, sir. He was a very restless gentleman, sir. A walk-in and a stamping all the time he was here. "'I was waiting outside the door, sir, and I could hear him. "'At last he outs into the passage and he cries, "'Is that man never gonna come?' "'Those were his only words, sir. "'You'll only need to wait a little longer,' says I. "'Then I'll wait in the open air, for I feel half choked,' says he. "'I'll be back before long.' "'And with that he ups and he outs, "'and all I could say wouldn't hold him back. "'Well, well, you did your best.' "'said Holmes as we walked into our room. "'It's very annoying, though, Watson. "'I was badly in need of a case, "'and this looks from the man's impatience "'as if it were importance. "'Hello? "'That's not your pipe on the table. "'He must have left this behind him. "'A nice old briar with a good long stem "'of what the tobacconists call amber. "'I wonder how many real amber mouthpieces "'there are in London.' Some people think that a fly in it is a sign. Well, he must have been disturbed in his mind to leave a pipe behind him, which he evidently values highly. How do you know that he values it highly, I asked. Well, I should put the original cost at the pipe of seven and sixpence. Now it has, you see, been twice mended, once in the wooden stem and once in the amber. Each of these mends, done as you observe, with silver bands, must have cost more than the pipe did originally. The man must value the pipe highly when he prefers to patch it up, rather than buy a new one with the same money. Anything else? I asked, for Holmes was turning the pipe about in his hand and staring at it in his peculiar pensive way. He held it up and tapped on it with his long thin forefinger, as a professor might who was lecturing on a bone. "'Pipes are occasionally of extraordinary interest,' said he. "'Nothing has more individuality, save perhaps watches and bootlaces. "'The indications here, however, are neither very marked nor very important. "'The owner is obviously a muscular man, left-handed, "'with an excellent set of teeth, careless in his habits, "'and with no need to practice economy.' My friend threw out the information in a very offhand way, but I saw that he cocked his eye at me to see if I had followed his reasoning. "'You think a man must be well-to-do if he smokes a seven-shilling pipe,' said I. "'This is a grover mixture at eight-pence-an-ounce,' Holmes answered, knocking a little out on his palm. "'As he might get an excellent smoke for half the price, he has no need to practice economy.' And the other points. He has been in the habit of lighting his pipe at lamps and gas jets. You can see that it is quite charred all down one side. Of course, a match could not have done that. Why should a man hold a match to the side of his pipe? But you cannot light it at a lamp without getting the bowl charred. And it is all on the right side of the pipe. From that, I gather that he is a left-handed man. You hold your own pipe to the lamp and see how naturally you, being right-handed, hold the left side to the flame. You might do it once the other way, but not as a constancy. This has always been held so. Then he has bitten through his amber. It takes a muscular, energetic fellow and one with a good set of teeth to do that. But if I am not mistaken, I hear him upon the stair. So we shall have some more interesting things. "'Things than his pipe to study. "'An instant later our door opened "'and a tall young man entered the room. "'He was well but quietly dressed in a dark grey suit "'and carried a brown wide awake in his hand. "'I should have put him at about thirty, "'though he was really some years older. "'I beg your pardon,' said he, with some embarrassment. "'I suppose I should have knocked. "'Yes, of course I should have knocked.' "'The fact is that I am a little upset, and you must put it all down to that.' "'He passed his hand over his forehead like a man who was half dazed, "'and then fell rather than sat down upon a chair. "'I can see that you have not slept for a night or two, said Holmes in his easy, genial way. "'That tries a man's nerves more than work and more even than pleasure. "'May I ask how I can help you?' "'I wanted your advice, sir.' I don't know what to do, and my whole life seems to have gone to pieces. You wish to employ me as a consulting detective? Not that only. I want your opinion as a judicious man, as a man of the world. I want to know what I ought to do next. I hope to God you'll be able to tell me. He spoke in little sharp, jerky outbursts. "'and it seemed to me that to speak at all was very painful to him, "'and that his will all through was overriding his inclinations. "'It's a very delicate thing,' said he. "'One does not like to speak of one's domestic affairs to strangers. "'It seems dreadful to discuss the conduct of one's wife "'with two men whom I have never seen before. "'It's horrible to have to do it, but I've got to the end of my tether, "'and I must have advice.' "'My dear Mr. Grant Monroe,' began Holmes, "'our visitor sprang from his chair. "'What?' you cried. "'You know my name!' "'If you wish to preserve your incognito,' said Holmes, smiling, "'I would suggest that you cease to write your name "'upon the lining of your hat, "'or else that you turn the crown "'towards the person whom you are addressing. "'I was about to say that my friend and I "'have listened to a good many strange secrets in this room.' and that we have had the good fortune to bring peace to many troubled souls. I trust that we may do as much for you. Might I beg you, as time may prove to be of importance, to furnish me with the facts of your case without further delay? Our visitor again passed his hand over his forehead, as if he found it bitterly hard. From every gesture and expression I could see that he was a reserved, self-contained man with a dash of pride in his nature, more likely to hide his wounds than to expose them. Then suddenly, with a fierce gesture of his closed hand, like one who throws reserve to the winds, he began. "'The facts are these, Mr. Holmes,' said he. "'I am a married man, and have been so for three years. "'During that time my wife and I have loved each other "'as fondly and lived as happily as any two that ever were joined.' "'We have not had a difference, not one, in thought or word or deed. "'And now, since last Monday, there has suddenly sprung up a barrier between us, "'and I find that there is something in her life and in her thought of which "'I know as little as if she were the woman who brushes by me in the street. "'We are estranged, and I want to know why.' Now, there is one thing that I want to impress upon you before I go any further, Mr. Holmes. Effie loves me. Don't let there be any mistake about that. She loves me with her heart and her soul, and never more than now. I know it. I feel it. I don't want to argue about that. A man can tell easily enough when a woman loves him. But there is this secret between us, and we can never be the same until it is cleared. "'Kindly let me have the facts, Mr. Monroe,' said Holmes, with some impatience. "'I'll tell you what I know about Effie's history. "'She was a widow when I met her first, though quite young, only twenty-five. "'Her name then was Mrs. Hebron. "'She went out to America when she was young "'and lived in the town of Atlanta, "'where she married this Hebron, who was a lawyer "'with a good practice. "'They had one child, but the yellow fever broke out badly in the place, "'and both husband and child died of it. "'I've seen his death certificate. "'This sickened her of America, "'and she came back to live with a and aunt at Pinner in Middlesex. "'I may mention that her husband had left her comfortably off "'and that she had a capital of about 4,500 pounds.' which had been so well invested by him that it returned an average of seven percent. She had only been six months at Pinner when I met her. We fell in love with each other, and we married a few weeks afterwards. I am a hop merchant myself, and as I have an income of seven or eight hundred, we found ourselves comfortably off and took a nice eighty-pound-a-year villa at Norbury. Our little place was very countrified, considering that it is so close to town. We had an inn and two houses a little above us and a single cottage at the other side of the field which faces us. And except those, there were no houses until you got halfway to the station. My business took me into town at certain seasons, but in summer I had less to do, and then in our country home my wife and I were just as happy as could be wished. I tell you that there was never a shadow between us, until this accursed affair began. There's one thing I ought to tell you before I go further. When we married, my wife made over all her property to me, rather against my will, for I saw how awkward it would be if my business affairs went wrong. However, she would have it so, and it was done. Well, about six weeks ago, she came to me. Jack, said she. "'When you took my money, you said that if ever I wanted any, "'I was to ask you for it.' "'Certainly,' said I. "'It's all your own.' "'Well,' said she, "'I want a hundred pounds.' "'I was a bit staggered at this, "'for I had imagined it was simply a new dress "'or something of the kind that she was after. "'What on earth for?' I asked. "'Oh,' said she, in her playful way, "'You said that you were my banker, and bankers never ask questions, you know.' "'If you really mean it, of course, you shall have the money,' said I. "'Oh, yes, I really mean it. "'And you won't tell me what you want it for. "'Someday, perhaps, but not just at present, Jack.' "'So I had to be content with that. "'It was the first time there had ever been any secret between us. "'I gave her a check and never thought any more of the matter.' It may have nothing to do with what came afterwards, but I thought it right to mention it. Well, I told you just now that there is a cottage not far from our house. There is just a field between us, but to reach it you have to go along the road and then turn down a lane. Just beyond it is a nice little grove of scotch firs, and I used to be very fond of strolling down there, for trees are always a neighbourly kind of things. The cottage had been standing empty this eight months, and it was a pity, for it was a pretty two-storied place with an old-fashioned porch and honeysuckle about it. I have stood many a time and thought what a neat little homestead it would make. Well, last Monday evening I was taking a stroll down that way when I met an empty van coming up the lane and saw a pile of carpets and things lying about on the grass plot beside the porch. It was clear that the cottage had at last been let. I walked past it and wondered what sort of folk they were who had come to live so near us. And as I looked, I suddenly became aware that a face was watching me out of one of the upper windows. I don't know what there was about that face, Mr. Holmes, but it seemed to send a chill right down my back. I was some little way off so that I could not make out the features, but there was something unnatural and inhuman about the face. That was the impression that I had, and I moved quickly forwards to get a nearer view of the person who was watching me. But as I did so, the face suddenly disappeared, so suddenly that it seemed to have been plucked away into the darkness of the room. I stood for five minutes thinking the business over and trying to analyze my impressions. I could not tell if the face were that of a man or a woman. It had been too far from me for that, but its color was what had impressed me most. "'It was of a livid chalky white, and with something set and rigid about it which was kingly unnatural. "'So disturbed was I that I determined to see a little more of the new inmates of the cottage. "'I approached and knocked at the door, which was instantly opened by a tall, gaunt woman with a harsh, forbidding face. "'What may you be wanting?" she asked in a northern accent. "'I am your neighbor over yonder,' said I, nodding towards my house. "'I see that you have only just moved in, "'so I thought that if I could be of any help to you, and any, "'I will just ask you when we want you,' said she, "'and shut the door in my face. "'Annoyed at the churlish rebuff, I turned my back and walked home. "'All evening, though, I tried to think of other things.' my mind was still turned to the apparition at the window and the rudeness of the woman. I determined to say nothing about the former to my wife, for she is a nervous, highly strong woman, and I had no wish that she should share the unpleasant impression which had been produced upon myself. I remarked to her, however, before I fell asleep, that the cottage was now occupied. To which she returned no reply. I am usually an extremely sound sleeper. It has been a standing jest in the family that nothing could ever wake me during the night. And yet, somehow on that particular night, whether it may have been the slight excitement produced by my little adventure or not, I know not, but I slept much more lightly than usual. Half in my dreams I was dimly conscious that something was going on in the room, and gradually became aware that my wife had dressed herself "'and was slipping on her mantle and her bonnet. "'My lips were parted to murmur out some sleepy words "'of surprise or remonstrance at this untimely preparation, "'when suddenly my half-opened eyes fell upon her face, "'illuminated by the candlelight, "'and astonishment held me dumb. "'She wore an expression such I has never seen before, "'such as I had should have thought her incapable of assuming. "'She was deadly pale.' and breathing fast, glancing furtively towards the bed as she fastened her mantle to see if she had disturbed me. Then, thinking that I was still asleep, she slipped noiselessly from the room, and an instant later I heard a sharp creaking which could only come from the hinges of the front door. I sat up in my bed, and I wrapped my knuckles against the rail to make certain that I was truly awake. Then I took my watch from under the pillow, It was three in the morning. What on this earth could my wife be doing out in a country road at three in the morning? I had sat for about twenty minutes turning the thing over in my mind and trying to find some possible explanation. The more I thought, the more extraordinary and inexplicable it appeared. I was still puzzling over it when I heard the door gently close again and her footsteps coming up the stairs. Where in the world have you been, Effie? I asked as she entered. She gave a violent start and a kind of gasping cry when I spoke, and that cry and start troubled me more than all the rest, for there was something indescribably guilty about them. My wife had always been a woman of a frank open nature, and it gave me a chill to see her slinking into her own room and crying out and wincing when her own husband spoke to her. You awake, Jack? she cried with a nervous laugh. Why, I thought that nothing could awake you. Where have you been? I asked more sternly. I don't wonder that you were surprised, said she, and I could see that her fingers were trembling as she undid the fastenings of her mantle. Why, I never remember having done such a thing in my life before. The fact is I felt as though I were choking and had a perfect longing for a breath of fresh air. I really think that I should have fainted if I had not gone out. I stood at the door for a few minutes and now I am quite myself again. All the time that she was telling me this story she never once looked in my direction and her voice was quite unlike her usual tones. It was evident to me that what she was saying was false. I said nothing in reply but turned my face to the wall Sick at heart, with my mind filled with a thousand venomous doubts and suspicions. What was it that my wife was concealing from me? Where had she been during this strange expedition? I felt that I should have no peace until I knew, and yet I drank from asking her again after once she had told me what was false. All the rest of the night I tossed and tumbled, framing theory after theory, each more unlikely than the last. I should have gone to the city that day, but I was too disturbed in my mind to be able to pay attention to business matters. My wife seemed to be as upset as myself, and I could see from the little questioning glances, which she kept shooting at me, that she understood that I disbelieved her statement, and that she was at her wit's end what to do. We hardly exchanged a word during breakfast, and immediately afterwards I went out for a walk. "'that I might think the matter out in the fresh morning air. "'I went as far as the Crystal Palace, spent an hour in the grounds, "'and was back in Norbury by one o'clock. "'It happened that my way took me past the cottage, "'and I stopped for an instant to look at the windows "'and to see if I could catch a glimpse of the strange face "'which had looked out at me on the day before. "'As I stood there, imagined my surprise, Mr. Holmes, "'when the door suddenly opened and my wife walked out. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great public domain stories like this one to feature on the show. If you know of any, please email us, bigvoicej at gmail.com. Certain episodes have been turned into YouTube videos. We've got a playlist for you, tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. If you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>